Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to our series of sermons on Jesus. This is an unusual series of sermons in that the way that I've structured them, we have an extended introduction followed by a song to set the tone for the topic of the day. And then we get into, I guess you'd say, the sermon proper. Obviously, we've edited out the songs. Anyway, there's a little heads up. Enjoy the sermon. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Do you know where those words are from? Uh, They're the opening words of Luke's gospel. Luke, the doctor, Luke, the very clear-headed, the sharp-minded early missionary, along with Paul, a companion to him in the early Christian movement in the first century. Luke, who it seems this bloke Theophilus has paid, has commissioned to be Christianity's first investigative reporter, our first investigative journalist, interviewing the eyewitnesses asking the hard questions, piecing together, putting together the facts and hopefully arriving at the truth. And I read it up front because as we look today at Jesus' death, in particular from Luke's Gospel, I really do want you, O listener, O reader, to have that confidence to know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, that you hear today, so to speak. The death of Jesus... I will argue, it stands as a fact of history, a fact that can be known, that should be known, that can be relied upon with certainty and with confidence, is what Luke set out to do, along with the other gospel writers. But brothers and sisters, let me read you something else now. And I think this illustrates the bigger challenge for us today as we weigh the crucifixion of Jesus. Here it is, you've you've heard me quote it before, I, I know that, but here it is. The Christian gospel, writes Tim Keller, modern preacher, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Here's a quote about the death of Jesus not so much the historical fact of his, Jesus, of his death, I think we can basically assume that in many ways. Uh, historians of all stripes agree that he lived, that he died, that he was crucified under the Romans and all the rest. The issue isn't over the fact of his death, is it? But let me read that again. I'll emphasise the bit that ruffles us. Here it is. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. I think that's what ruffles us. Yet I am so loved and valued. Oh, that doesn't ruffle us. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I'm so loved and valued. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the challenge of the death of Jesus for us, isn't it? Not in our heads, the problem is in our hearts. The problem isn't historical, the problem is moral, if I can put it that way, by which I mean many of us here have a hard time reconciling the thought that Jesus had to die for me, that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. I mean, others of us will readily accept that, actually. I don't want to generalise, because, but even so, we struggle to meaningfully 
um, gutsily engage our hearts with the truth that a man that we love actually did die for us. Do you know what I mean? Historically, actually, reliably. What do we do with that with our hearts? Well, wherever you're up to along that journey, may I ask something of us all today? As we look at the death of Jesus, firstly, I want to ask, please don't disengage. Don't disengage with your heart, I mean. Far too often in my short few years already, I've met men and women, young and old, who believe up here that, yes, Jesus died for them. Yep, I'm a sinner. Yep, he went to the cross to spare me from hell. Yep, I believe all that stuff. They say it all, but it is like their hearts are completely disengaged. They are saying that they believe a person died for them to save them from eternal hell and from guilt. That that, that has to mean something in their lives, doesn't it? Please don't disengage your heart today. But equally, I'm not out, and I want you to know this, I'm not out for the cheap thrills, the emotionally manipulated converts. You know what I mean? No, you, you need your mind engaged. If this is true, that he was who he said he was, he did what he said he did, and he died why he said he died, then your head needs answers if your convictions are going to mean anything to your heart for the long haul. Hearts and minds. Uh, I, I just appeal to you to have both engaged as we read now. Uh, but before we do, as I've been doing these last weeks, I'd like us to sing again. Uh, and we're going to sing The Power of the Cross, which obviously is a Christian reflection um, on what the death of Jesus means to us. So would you please stand, let's sing. Please pray with me. Father God in heaven, we're reading the words of men handed down to us through the ages, which are also the word of God to us, your people, this very day. Your powerful word, living and potent, to change heads and hearts and lives. And Father, we do ask for change in us today. Remind us and refresh us, convict us and convince us of truths and implications of Christ's death that perhaps have grown a little dim to us, that have become a little dulled or obscured. Please move amongst us now, we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verse 26, Luke chapter 23, verse 26, seems as good a place as any uh, for us to uh, pick up the story. Remember, Luke uh, wrote without chapter or verse number when he wrote his account, he just wrote it from the beginning, wrote it through to the end and I imagine that's how the first readers read it. We've put in the chapter and verse bits to help us find our place. Uh, But even just the first, sorry, the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life goes on for pages and pages. So we need to pick it up at some point. Uh, We're not going to cover the whole lot. We won't even cover as much as Jack read for us. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 26 is where we'll pick it up. And at this point, Jesus has been sentenced, he's been condemned by Pilate, the soldiers have taken control of him and Jesus, there's there's an irony here folks, a carpenter by trade who had spent his early years lugging timber around, we take it, with his earthly father, Jesus is now so beaten and weak that he cannot even carry the timber cross on which he's to hang. Verse 26... As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. 
A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed uh, for him. There's the scene. I'm going to pause each time. It's sort of a, a commented reading, I suppose. Pause each time just to ask us to weigh, to weigh the heads and the hearts of the people who swirl around Jesus in this account. And we begin with these women. A large number of people, verse 27, followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and and your children. (laughs) How bizarre, they're not the ones who are going to hang. They're not the ones who are going to hang. But in Jesus' mind, verse 29, uh, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now, what do you think is going on there? What is Jesus warning them of? These first people that we encounter, uh, in the, at least from where we've picked it up, what's he, is he forewarning these women of the destruction of Rome? Is that it? Uh, sorry, of, of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. It actually happened uh, within the lifetime of uh, some of the people there. And that was a gruesome day for the Jews indeed in AD 70 when it was finally overrun. Or is it a figurative warning you know, more symbolic than literal, that, hey, my death isn't a time for simple grief. It's not just for laying on sympathy. Take a look at what it means for you, would you? Would you weigh up your demise instead of just crying for mine? Your judgment? Weigh up what is going to happen to you long after I'm gone. Daughters of Jerusalem, shedding a few sympathetic tears for me won't decide your destiny. Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Well, we're not given much time to think about it. Verse 32, the story just goes on. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. You know, these days, people always notice this thing about Luke and Matthew and Mark and John. They notice this thing that all four of them do. It's, and, and they say, look, Luke, Luke doesn't dwell on the gory details, they say. Luke doesn't tell us about nails hammered. He doesn't tell us about blood running down. No, Luke keeps it simple. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. That's it, simple. And the implication in those conversations, at least as I hear them, is so, preacher, don't go leaning on people with the gory details. Don't don't break people's hearts with this scene. Because it's not fair and it's not what the Bible writers do. Just keep it simple. And to that, I just want to say, yeah, kind of, but how many crucifixions have my hearers seen? Zero. That's how many. In the first century, you couldn't even mention the word crucifixion in polite conversation. So you couldn't have read out verse 33 in polite conversation. Why is that? What, what, what's the big deal? Well, like today, there are just certain words, there are certain abuses, there are certain things that you don't want to talk about. You, we can't talk about them freely because they hijack, emotionally hijack conversation. They're just too much. You can't talk about that. And you know that if you do mention it, then that's, that's it. That if, if there's someone closely affected by that in the, in the close vicinity, they're gone for the evening. You can kiss their, their kind of mind goodbye. 
Anyway, I digress, I suppose, but I just, I do want us to notice Jesus beat up already and they get him to Skull Place and you know what they did? There they crucified him. I just want us to notice that because it's such a short phrase, we could pass it by, I hardly know this. Oh, yes, yes, this is crucified. Shall we read on verse 34? Oh my gosh, verse 34. If, if it were me, verse 34, I'll tell you how it would read. Uh, I'd say, Father, I don't deserve this, haven't you squashed these guys like bugs? Father, they are hurting me, give them a taste of what I'm feeling right now. Father, they are going to be sorry one day, promise me that, won't you? There they crucified him along with the other criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said to them, said, sorry, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Is there another verse in the Bible that illustrates for me the gap, the yawning vast gap between me and Jesus? Is there another verse in the Bible that illustrates to me how far short I fall? Is there another verse in the Bible that dwarfs me quite the way this one does? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, the end of verse 34. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. Now, the image that you've probably got in your mind is of Jesus way up there and the crowds around him. But did you know, it's pretty common practice and very likely that he was just centimetres off the ground, like maybe a foot or so, so barely above the people. The point that I'm trying to get at is, these guys were almost eyeballing them. Hello, he could hear you when you're speaking. Do you see? Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, it's hard reading, isn't it? Obviously, these guys are the cautionary tale, aren't they, in this story so far? Uh, What is Luke trying to communicate um, to us? Uh, they're, They're the cautionary tale. They are saying things. They are jeering in ways. They are throwing stuff around about Jesus that people do today still. But it sounds so much worse when it's said to his face. Notice the details, because Luke hung there, sorry, Jesus hung there for hours and of the hours of chatter, Luke just picks out these. He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, Christ and chosen, they're they're royal kind of leader, kind of king ideas. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself There was a written notice, this is the King of the Jews, aren't you the Christ, save yourself and us, let's just count that up, save, save, Christ chosen King, save, King, Christ, save. Do you see what Luke's up to? Luke's giving you his opinion as to who is hanging from that cross. He, Jesus, he is the King, you fools, and saving is exactly what he's doing. 
And so, you beastly men, in your ignorance, in your sadism, in your uppity power, you are taunting the King who can save you. In your smug kind of self-assurance, you can't see it, but you ought to be doing what the next guy does. You ought to be doing what the other guy hanging beside him does. Verse uh, 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun had stopped shining. Was it an eclipse, some other supernatural occurrence? I guess we don't know, I guess it doesn't matter. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he'd said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who stood sorry, who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Where were those hearts and minds? Just those last few there. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 42, surely this was a righteous man. Verse 47, and the crowd beating their breasts, having watched him die. The beating their breasts, that's a, that's a grief thing, a regret thing, a sadness thing. And finally, the women who had followed him and the others stood at a distance watching these things. Okay, there's the harrowing story. Those are the facts. That's what we can know with certainty. That's what you need to know, dear reader, dear listener. What you can know with certainty, with confidence. These are the things that happened 2,000 years ago on a real hillside outside the real Jerusalem to a real man. Thanks, Luke. You've given us the certainty. You've given us the confidence. But before we close, may I ask you, brothers and sisters, to weigh your heart on this passage and not just your head. To weigh your heart. Please don't, yourself, don't let yourself be yet another person with a head full of convictions about Jesus and a heart full of nothing. How are we going to respond? Head, heart and soul. Because disinterest is a response. Putting it off endlessly is a response. So let me set just two questions before you uh, to help us weigh this passage, to help us weigh our hearts in response to it. Two quick questions. Number one, question number one. From this passage, which response to Jesus rings true? As in, of the characters that we've just met, albeit briefly whose response seems just the most sane, just the most right, the most noble, the most admirable, the one that, had you been there, you'd want to have said that. Which of the responses that we meet here sound about right? Did anyone get it right on that day? From the women who sympathised at the beginning, at least they sympathised, right? To the criminals who uh, had his moment, did anyone get it right? Have you got someone in mind? Number two then, if you can join the dots for them, 
How about you join the dots for you? Well, you might say the centurion got it right. Surely this man was the real deal, righteous and perfect. I've never seen anyone like this man. Maybe the centurion got it right. Well, how would that look in your life? Or the criminal, Jesus, you know, my life has not been pretty. I'm getting my just desserts right here and now. Jesus, just remember me, won't you? How would that kind of self-abandon before Jesus look in your life? Or the women at the start, you know, at least you can say their hearts were engaged, weren't they? The women at the end from Galilee, standing and just watching as well as his friends. And I, I presume they were standing and they were watching because they loved him. They'd learned to love this man. They'd learned to love a man who could even say to his crucifiers, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. They loved this man and so they stood. They had nowhere else that they needed to be. They knew, if they knew nothing else, that wherever Jesus was, that's where they were going to stand. How would devotion to Jesus look in your life? How would a heart engaged by this look in your life? The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. May I lead us in prayer? Our great God in heaven, there are times when heaven seems so far off and the things of earth seem so very here. Our minds are distracted, our lives are distracted. We spend our days busy with things, busy with people, people that we love, people that we find it hard to love, tasks that we want to do, things that we do because we've got to. But Father, our, earths, our, our lives are so bound bound up in the things of this earth and yet there was a moment in history when our God came to earth, when heaven touched the earth and Father we pray please as we look on, as we mull over, as we think about the death of our God on the cross, the God-man Jesus, Father we, we pray please Would you enable us to engage our hearts and our minds there, please? There are those amongst us who have been Christians for, for many years, many decades, and we know that we're still not where we need to be. There are those among us who haven't been Christians for terribly long, aren't quite sure if we're followers of Jesus, and yet we see this man... Father, would you please teach us to engage our hearts and minds rightly with this story, this beautiful story of one who was glad to die for us because he so loved and valued us. And Father, would you please impress upon us, yes, even the truth that we're so flawed that he had to die for us. Lord God, we ask that we might do justice to the gospel of the Lord Jesus in our lives by your Holy Spirit. Please teach us that, even this week, even this day. For Christ's sake, Amen.